Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21? And uh, if there are any kids, it doesn't look like, so uh, now is the time to head back to Sunday school. I suppose if there are adults who want to head back to Sunday school, that, that can be done too, and I won't take it personally. So, I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 of Revelation chapter 21. It's uh, John's vision of the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. He says, It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Our Father, we are grateful for your kindness. We are grateful that as we come to worship you, you are not silent. For we have read your word, and we now will take time to meditate upon this passage of Scripture. And as you have called me to preach this passage, we pray that you would bless us and that you would change us. We pray for our Sunday school class, particularly for our children. We continue to ask you, O oh God, to utilize this ministry to bring our children to yourself. And those who know you, Lord, please build them up in the most holy faith that a foundation will be laid for them that will sustain them through the trials that they will face in this life. And would you do all of this for Jesus' sake? Amen. There's a rhetorical device that's called unification through a common enemy. Think about it. It's kind of self-descriptive, right? Unification through a common enemy. And you see it really commonly. And, and uh, when it comes to within the church, I see it as really kind of picking the, the low-hanging fruit. And this is, this is, maybe this is picking up the fruit off of the ground. And maybe it's fruit off the ground that's kind of partly rotted in, in my mind because I, I'm not a real fan of it. Um, the idea is that, that you, you, you come up with a common enemy and you utilize that common enemy. They're so bad and they're horrible and they're against us in order to create a sense of, of unity and maybe to motivate people that we need to fight that common enemy. And, and whatever that enemy may be at the time, it could be a, a, a different theological position, it could be a, a political position, it could be um, just, just virtually anything that we want to come up with and it can be used. And what it does is it, it feeds on the suspicions that we all feel. Because there's an element in which we're just not sure about those other folks, right? We're comfortable with us, but them is another issue, and they are a problem. And, and, and what unification by a common enemy does is it, it begins to, f to feed on and, 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 and to prompt that, that sense of suspicion that we have toward those who are outside of, of our group. And it also creates a sense of nobility, particularly when we begin to think of that other group as not just an enemy, but, but as an enemy that's attacking us and that we're the persecuted ones. And then when we stand up for what we hold who, who within our group, we feel kind of noble, you know, because we're, we're facing down this, this big bad uh, enemy who's, who's coming against us. And, and, it, and, it, and it feeds that, which allows it to continue to strength. Now, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. 
Um, I really believe that we're far better off as a church of Jesus Christ to be united in a cause, right? Which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's what ought to unite us as a church. I think that when we're united by that, we find motivation not in let's be different from those other people, but let's do that which is good. So we're united in the goodness of that cause and we're motivated by that goodness. And while I'm not a fan of the idea of, of unification through a common en- en- enemy, I am aware of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 as a reality that we face in our life, which says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The fact is we do have an enemy. And that enemy is angelically powerful. And that enemy wants nothing more than to destroy. Not just Christians. wants to destroy everyone. There's, there's no uh, desire to only focus on Christians. The reason the, the emphasis may be on them is, is because those who are not Christians are already on the way to destruction. And so we do have this enemy. And the book of Revelation is written at the end of the first century. And it was written at a time in which Christians were indeed being persecuted. It wasn't at the worst point of, of persecution in Christian history, but it was, it was rising rapidly. And uh, it was getting worse. And so the people who are receiving this message of the book of Revelation are Christians who've seen the destruction of of, uh, Jerusalem. And now they're facing the persecution themselves. They've seen almost all of the apostles have been uh, killed for their faith. And this persecution is going on and it's getting worse. And so John is writing them a letter as he himself is in exile. And he wants to write to them a letter and he wants to encourage them. And the Spirit of God is giving him this vision. And the purpose is God wants to build up his people. And he wants to give them hope. And he wants to give them something that's going to enable them to make it through all of this persecution. Which years ago I taught through the book of Revelation and I used a theme in the book of Revelation. Which is, and Patrick could probably say it right now. Jesus is the only hope in a sin-cursed world. And that's really the message of the book of Revelation. And we get to the end, we're given this vision. John is showing us this vision of a safe place. As the people of God are feeling the anxiety and the uncertainty of, of the persecution that's around them. And he shows them there is a safe place and that safe place is the church, the new Jerusalem. And they were invited, and we are also invited, to find safety in that city, in the New Jerusalem. Let's consider how we can do that. And the first way in which we're going to find safety in the city is we have to enter through the gates. Looking at verses 12 and 13 again. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, twelve angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now gates, that's, that's the way in which you would enter into a city, right? That's the place where you would come in. There's no other way to get into the city but through the gate. And so as he's talking about gates, he's talking about the entrance into the city, the entrance into the New Jerusalem, the entrance into the bride of the Lamb, which is the church. And he talks about these gates. And I want us to, to meditate on them for a moment. Now, gates we, we see used at different places in Scripture. In Luke chapter 16, verse 20, 
we, we see the gates as Jesus is telling the story of uh, Lazarus and, and the rich man. And in verse 20, um, he says, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. Now he would be at the entrance to the city. As people would come in and go out of the city, here was this poor man that was in this uh, horrible state, and he would be there in order to beg, because that's where the people were going to be. And he knew that it was in, in this position. You remember the, the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple, the way in which you would enter into the temple ground, and the lame man is there, and, and the, the uh, moment when uh, Peter and John come up and they say, you know, silver and gold, have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you, stand and walk. And they healed him at that moment. And, and that happened at the gate where people were coming in and going out. The gate is also used in uh, Matthew chapter 7 and, and maybe even more clearly connected to what we're reading here. In verse 13, as we're told, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And this is the gate into the kingdom of God, the gate into the church. Notice in this description of, of uh, the gates that, that I believe that it's telling us that the, that the gates are available to all. Now that isn't universalism. That's not what we're talking about. This is more in line with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, in which we're told uh, that uh, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. We believe that, right? We recognize that. He's chosen those who are his own, but he, he desires all men, and, and, and we're given this. And so there's a desire for him, for everyone to have an opportunity that's available to all. Look at the directions of the gates. He says that, uh, first of all, there are three gates on each side. On the east, on the east side. Think about where Jerusalem was within uh, Israel. And as we put ourselves in that spot, and we think of what's to the east of Jerusalem, just Gentile countries. That's all that's over there. You go up to the, the, the border, which is the, the uh, river, and then all you, the Jordan River, and then beyond that, it's just Gentiles. That's it, to the east, just Gentiles. So he starts out and he says, first off, understand that the gates, there are three of them on the east, and he specifically starts in the east. Now, we would tend to not do that, right? We, we tend to start with the north, and we might go north, south, east, west, right? And, and that's how we, but he starts on the east. And the reason is to begin to let us know who's there. There are three gates to the side where the Gentiles are. Then there are three to the north. What's to the north? Well, you remember Solomon's children divided the kingdom, that Israel was the entire nation. But as Solomon's children, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, got in a fight with one another, it divided into two. The north, which was Israel, also known as Samaria, and the south, which was Judah. And Israel was taken away and never came back. And so it was Judah was the southern tribe. So to the north was Samaria. We all know about Samaria and the, the, the difficulty that the Jews, that is those of Judah, had with the Samaritans. And it goes back to Rehoboam and Jeroboam and that fight that was there. So, so John in describing the church starts out and he says, there are three gates for the Gentiles. There are three gates for the Samaritans. And then he looks at the west and the south, which are 
Israel or Judah that's all around them, and it's the people of God. Now, it also, uh, people coming from, from the deep south on up from uh, Egypt and into Africa are all going to be coming from the south, from the west. Hey, that's us. We're off to the west, that we would be coming in by that gate. And, and so what's he saying? Why does he talk about these three on all three sides and specifically in this order? Because he wants us to begin to see even the promise of Isaiah chapter 19. This is one of my favorite Christmas verses. Uh, passages in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 23 through 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. What a tremendous promise of the gospel going forth to all of the world. Which isn't that God's plan from the very beginning? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God said to Adam, before sin had ever even come into this world, he says to him, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We're going to just stop there. What's he to do? Fill the earth. Fill the earth just with people? No, but with people who are trusting in God, who are living faithful to God. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God is speaking to Abraham, and he calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he says to him, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will bless, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Psalm chapter 72, this great picture of, of the reign of Christ, we read in verse 17, May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. And then in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, we like 2.4, which talks about... Uh, uh, the just shall live by faith, but 2.14 is magnificent, where God says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now think about that for just a moment. Just how exactly do the waters cover the sea? Isn't that kind of a silly statement, right? I mean, the waters are the sea, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's, you can't... That's the point. And that the glory of God, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to fill the earth in exactly the same way that there's going to be nothing on this earth that does not demonstrate the glory of God. That all of God's, all of the people will be God's and that God is inviting all men everywhere to be saved. Matthew twenty four fourteen. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. And then in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of whom? All nations. Um, just think for just a moment. What, what do we mean by all? More importantly, what does God mean by all? Doesn't all kind of mean like um, all? I mean all, all? That's what all means? Now think about that as Paul tells us about his work in Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, which every is the same word as all, pan, every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man 
complete in Christ. What is Paul aiming at in his ministry of preaching Christ? Where is he aiming? He wants to see some men complete in Christ, right? Right? No. No. It just is no. He wants to see every man complete in Christ. That's why the vision of Providence Presbyterian Church is that we seek to see every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Jesus Christ because that's what God has said. That's what he has called us to. That's what Paul's example is. This is what we're striving for. And as we look at Revelation 21, we look at that day in which he shows us that entrance into the church is available to all, that he has made it possible to for people to come in but we must believe the message notice the angels that there's 12 gates and each gate has an angel now we picture angels and we picture them as those little chubby babies right and sometimes they got a a bow and an arrow right and that's that's our idea of, of an angel the idea of an angel that we see in places like uh, genesis chapter three twenty four is an angel with a flaming sword in his hand making sure man doesn't come back into the garden that's a that's a little more powerful concept of an angel and if we think about that angel standing at these doors we see that he's standing there and he's standing there with a sword he's able to guard that only some can come into this kingdom and it's those who, who are going to be able to what? Believe the message. Because angel is actually a transliteration. It's not a translation. Uh, the, the, so you, you assign an English letter to a Greek or Hebrew letter, and you, you just write that out. And the Greek word is angelos. Angelos, or plural, angeloi. And, and so this is, this is the angels. Angel. Oh, okay, so angel. Well, what is an angeloi or an ang- angelos? It's a messenger. It's a messenger. And so these angels are messengers showing us that you only come in as you believe that message. As a matter of fact, we talk about the gospel, right? And we'll say, well, what's the gospel? It's good news, right? Good news. Well, what's the, the, the Greek word for, for gospel? It's euangelion. Okay? It's the good news. The angelos is a root word in that. You had the u in the front, which means good. And that's what we would translate as E-V. The good news. What is that good news? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, right? How do I come in? I come in to get past that angel who has that good message that Jesus died for my sins and that he rose again. Do you believe that? Do you believe that message? I would invite you to put your trust in that even this day. And then hope in God's promises. Uh, Look at verse 13. But then go back to 12. At the end of verse 12, And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So each of the gates has a name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Why the 12 tribes of Israel? I mean, aren't we in the New Covenant? Why, why are we bringing up the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, I think to understand that, we have to understand the significance of the 12 tribes. Remember, we already looked at Genesis chapter 12. That was the beginning of God's covenant promises with Abraham. We see that God entered into a covenant with man in creation in which man had to obey God. And he was given a test, which is don't eat that tree. 
He ate that tree and he sinned. And all men by that covenant deserve to be destroyed. But God said, I'm going to send my son, the seed of the woman, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so he entered into this new covenant through Adam, and he began to expand that. He did that with Noah as he expanded that concept, and and he he began to show that he wouldn't allow his wrath to be uh, brought through the flood upon the world, wiping out all the flesh, but instead he was going to prevent us from getting worse by bringing in laws. So he said, uh, specifically, the one who kills man by man, he shall be killed. And he brought in that law and that, that capital punishment in order to restrain our evil. And then he enters into a covenant with Abraham because now he's beginning to build a a church. And in building this church, he begins this relationship with Abraham and he promises Abraham, you're going to have a whole bunch of nations that are going to come from you. So he changes his name from exalted father to father of a multitude. And he begins to bring that forth. And he has his sons, uh, Jacob and, and Esau. And Jacob has 12 sons. And they become the 12 tribes. They become the, the foundation of the church. And God enters into a covenant with these people. And throughout the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant becomes central. And so he's talking about those 12 tribes as far as God's covenantal faithfulness. He has been faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham in which he said, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So much so that at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching a message. And as he's preaching a message, the people are so moved, they say, no, 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 Peter, stop. What must we do to be saved? In, In preaching, that's always instructive to me. Um, And that's why I invite you to come to Christ for salvation every week, mostly so you don't interrupt me by saying, wait, wait, pastor, what do we need to do to be saved? I want to be sure you know that in the midst of the message. And so Peter answers that question. And look at what he has to say. He says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? For the promise. What promise? That promise that he gave to Abraham, that he'll be your God and the God of your descendants after you. That promise that he gave in the Old Testament of, of salvation. And he says, this promise is for you and for whom? and for your children, and for whom? And for all who are far off, whoever God is calling to himself. This is the promise that we can hope in as we enter into the city through the gates. And then we can rest secure behind God's word. Verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and the gates 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Here we want to look a little bit at the wall. The wall of the city is what provides security for the city. And central to the wall's success was the strength of its foundation, right? If anybody's done anything like uh, uh, any type of construction where you've got to begin to build a wall, you know just how important that uh, foundation is for the strength of that wall, but also for the direction of that wall. And that's what the, the foundation stone would provide, is strength and direction. That foundation stone would be able to make sure that the angles are exactly right, and they would be able to build along those in order to keep it strong and straight. And so we're going to think about that concept of, of being strong and straight. Uh, Hebrews 11.10, uh, I'm sure you remember the, the passage where it talks about uh, the, the builder 
we read, for he that was, uh, uh, yeah, Jacob, was looking for the city whose foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he's looking for that city with those foundation that is strong and that is firm and that has actually been put there by God. But it may be even more important passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What does it mean to being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? What do the apostles and prophets have in common? What did they bring to us? Well, the prophets in the Old Testament were the one who brought us the word of God, right? They began to reveal to us what, what was truth. And in the New Testament, who is it that revealed to us the word of God? It was the apostles. So we have here the Old and the New Covenants laid down as the foundation for the church. This is what we're built upon, is the foundation of the word of God. So this wall has a foundation which is Scripture that serves for us in that way. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number three, asks, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is that the Scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. Two things. What we're supposed to believe about God, that's our strength, and what duty He requires, that's our direction. That's what keeps us straight. And so we're going to look at this, this wall and meditate on it from that understanding. First of all, that, that God's word dictates our theology. It's a high wall. And the higher the wall, the deeper and the stronger the foundation, right? Um, it's great when, when my uh, sons were young, I always had all these illustrations. And then they grew up and became adults. And it was really harder for me to have illustrations. But now uh, Ervis and Danny are around. I get illustrations again. It's great. Um, Legos, right? You've built with Legos, right? You want to build a tower, right? What do you got to do? You got to have a wide base. If you're using just one of those four whole Legos and you try to build up, I, I can't get much above 10 before it's just going to fall over, right? There's just nothing to it. But you begin to spread that out and all of a sudden you've got something that's a little bit sturdy and, and it's temporarily Danny-proof. You know, it takes her a little while to be able to knock that over. And that's what you want. You want to have that kind of foundation. And so that's exactly true of the walls of the city. It's got to have this, this solid, uh, deep foundation, which I think speaks of theology. Theology is the study of God. I love theology proper. In, in seminary, you have a lot of uh, theological uh, classes. Like you have ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. You may have soteriology, which is the doctrine of, of salvation. Uh, you may have uh, the doctrine of the Bible. You have doctrine of, of, of Christ. You have the doctrine of uh, all of these. But the one that you start with is always what we call theology proper. That is the doctrine of God. Who is God? And you want to understand who he is. But you know, as we think about that, there's, there's, I guess it's a temptation, a risk, a, a danger for us. I remember after I became a Christian, uh, I had grown up in a, a, a home that believed in reincarnation, and we were part of a, a, a group that would uh, get together weekly and talk about that. And one of the leaders of the group wanted to meet with me after I became a Christian. And I began to share my faith with him. And I remember something that he said to me that I thought was one of the saddest things I'd ever heard. And and it, it saddens me because I, I see the idea lived out around us. 
he said, I could never believe in a God like you describe. And I thought, isn't my job to just believe in the God who he is? Not to dictate how he has to be? It's not my job to determine who God is. He is. It's my job to know who he is. Well, how do I know who he is? Unless he reveals himself to me, and he does that in the scripture. But how often do we have a similar mindset? That we have an idea about God, and we want to make the scripture fit our idea about God. Instead of simply submitting ourselves to what the Bible tells us about him, and tells us who he is. That I have to be able to search the scripture to know who is it that the Bible says God is. Which means sometimes I, I need to allow for attention. Right? One of the great debates has always been about the relationship of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Right? And if you've been in the church very long, you know this becomes a big thing. So did, did God choose us or did we choose God? And so I want to answer that not by saying, well, I feel better on this way and the people I like, well, you know, Calvin would say this, so I want to be there. And others might say, well, Wesley says this and that's where I want to be. No, 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 I don't care about that. What does the scripture say? Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. Oh, okay, well that tells me that God chose. So, so that's what I want to hold to. But wait a minute. But Matthew 11, Jesus says, uh, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Wait a minute, that says that there's some level of human responsibility. Right, so let's allow that. Let's allow the tension. Tension's a good thing in our life. Can you imagine a, 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 a tightrope walker with a loose rope? That's called a dead person, right? <laughs> That's just not going to work. It's, you're not going to be able to get across there. But you need that tension. That tension becomes very, very helpful. And so we need to allow that tension because I want to believe not what I think is right. I want to believe not what the people around me believe, but I want to believe what the Word of God says and to always allow the Word of God to dictate. Look at the text. What does the text say? Even when the text makes me uncomfortable, I have to go back and allow Scripture to be that, that wall of protection. And then I've learned that God's word directs my life. The foundation stones set the direction of the wall. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question three, again, it says, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what we're to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That there are things that we are to do, that there is a lifestyle that we're to live, certain decisions that we're supposed to make. Again, one of the things that I found fascinating um, we have very dear friends who are devout Calvinists and devout Arminians. And I have found that when you look at the life of a devout Calvinist and a devout Arminian, you really find they're indistinguishable in the way that they live their lives. Why is that? I think because they're both trying to live their life off of the Word of God, not off of their theological positions. And they both are seeking after God because in the end, the Bible has the same message for us, doesn't it? The Bible has a message for us, and it's first and foremost tells us to believe. You've heard me say this on numerous occasions. It's the only thing I believe God is teaching us, is to believe. And one of the greatest ways of expressing that is by love. And if I begin to look at my life and I begin to see that it's lacking in faith or love, I can be assured that I'm not living it according to the Word of God, right? And it's a simple test that I can use in my own life. 2021, we have been focusing on heading home. That's been our, 
our theme this entire year. We started out the year by looking at uh, the book of Revelation in chapter 21 and 22 and the picture of heaven and, and getting an idea of, of what does that look like? What is home for us? That's been our emphasis. And so this year, as, as we were moving into Advent, I wanted us to, to think not just about Christ's first Advent when he came to earth as a baby, but I also wanted us to think about when he's going to come back and set all things right and the church will be complete long for that day. And so that's why we've taken the time to, to consider this part of the book of Revelation this year. Because Revelation 21, 9 through 27 pictures the church complete. In verses 12 through 14, it invites us to find safety in the city. To do that, we have to enter through the gates and we need to rest secure behind God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your goodness, for your love. We thank you for your vision of the church. As we look around us, we don't always see it as being the bright, shining organism that you describe it as. And yet, Lord, we want to see it more so. And so we ask that you will build your church and that you will help us, Lord, to find safety in that church. And would you do this for Jesus' sake? Amen.